Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. The Viewpoint. Weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Song is on on The Viewpoint.
Bongeziwe mabandla, bongeziwe mabandla, Mr. Bongeziwe mabandla, umlilo wesizatu, nine minutes past eight on this, the first day of July. Good evening, fellow South Africans, for those who have just joined us in this, the second hour. I'm joined just now by Doctors Without Borders' Ms. Yolandi Henning, who's a psychologist and talking about access to healthcare for rape survivors, particularly in public healthcare facilities. The time now is for us to have a quick ad break before we delve into this very critical discussion. And if you are wanting to join the discussion, the number is 0891-104-207. You don't even have to give us a name given the sensitivity of this topic, but we would want to get a sense of the human aspect that is surviving rape. Let's talk about untreated violence. Let's talk about rape culture in South Africa. Let's talk about the counseling services offered to rape survivors in South Africa. Let's talk about dying in silence. Let's talk about the status of mental health care for those who have to deal with the sexual assault to one's integrity, to one's future, to one's mind, to one's identity, to one's bodily and physical integrity, to one's everything, the heinous crime of rape. And joining us is Ms. Yolandi Henning. Yolanda Henning, I beg your pardon. Yolanda, good evening. Something which is quite good sobering evening. for us to talk about. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. How about you? I'm okay, thanks. This is something which is very sobering, but a very necessary discussion all the same that has to be had in on these platforms so that we can try and get a better clinical outcomes in this respect, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Well, tell us what you do. <laughs> okay, so so I'm a psychologist working for doctors with our bodies here in Westenburg, um, within the context of the platinum cells. Um, and so in the Rasnaburg area, MSF is offering comprehensive sexual and gender-based violence care to survivors of sexual violence. Um, and so what we offer is with the medical, psychological, and social care to the victims that present at Ahamoto Care Centers that are based within the community health centers. Beyond that, you obviously not just doing this for the sake of doing it, but because you are treating a serious societal intervention. Do you want to just give us a broad picture in terms of what South Africa's outlook is as it pertains to the culture of rape and specifically how rape survivors are dealt with by society, reintegrated into society, and how they fare in society post the assault on their person and everything that has to do with their reintegration, really, back into normal life, if ever that's possible? Yes, yes. And the way you ended your question is really good um, the, the, when you say, it, if ever it is possible. So the way um, South Africa is responding to rape, especially within the context of your public health facilities, is that they provide very strong medical legal support, um, but they exclude the mental health component. So often when survivors present at the public health facilities, um, is there's no guarantee that there will be spoken to by a counsellor. And with our work in Latin Belt and the rest of the context, we find that often it's the mental health consequences that are even more consequential to the survivor. And often survivors go untreated, and this often links to long-term consequences in terms of both the emotional and the mental health, and it affects their life, their whole lives. It affects their relationship with home, with their partner, it affects their self-esteem, um, and so they often don't find a way to reintegrate properly into society. And when you talk about rape culture, 
you're also looking at a society that to some extent would blame the victim, you know, and so within the context of um, the South African environment where a young girl might have been raped by an uncle, when a family conference is um, set up, there's often an agreement that for her survival, that she would marry the uncle, the very perpetrator of the violence. And then the cycle of violence continues. And then children are born within the cycle of violence. And often when people present as the case of these survivors, after many years of having experienced violence or ongoing recurring violence, and so the mental health issues are quite entrenched. And so they present with depression, severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, disassociation. And so if the mental health care is not offered to them, then often we miss a very big part of what is important in providing care to a victim of rape, sexual violence. Yolanda, let's talk about the levels of institutional failure in creating an environment that is completely at odds with the growing culture of rape. I mean, the rape culture in South Africa is exorbitantly high and fares among the worst in the world. Now, at an institutional level, what is it that our public monies are not doing through our elected representatives, through the public organizations that are out there, and other public supporting institutions and facilities that could otherwise make inroads in creating an atmosphere whereby this culture really shouldn't be entrenching itself, but rather should be on the decline? So as I was saying, you know, if a victim presents at any health facility that offers a service, yeah, then there's a strong focus on medical legal, and then the biggest question that is tied to that is, have you reported it to the police? So I think the approach to begin with is incorrect, in that it could actually uh, result in further secondary traumatization of the victim if there's an enforcement for police reporting. I can tell you of a situation where uh, a parent took a child to a private facility, even, and, and so not just a public facility, but also our private facilities are guilty of this, where they link rape to police reporting. And I do understand the reasoning about, you know, focusing on the medical legal aspects um, and the increased conviction rates and so on, but the often you find the medical professionals even turning victims away because they want to see a case number. So I think just the whole approach to how the facilities, the organizations are addressing rape is incorrect. It's not focusing on the needs of the patient. You know, it's more focusing on what is legally required of this action. So the whole human aspect is lost. Um, so if you ask me what's going wrong there is that there's a strong need for these organizations, these facilities to acknowledge the importance of addressing the mental health needs of survivors that present at the facility. And then we're in conversation. When I yes, talk sure. about mental health, yes. I will not exclude the need to also include the social aspect. You know? Because often the social workers have to do, conduct a safety risk assessment. And I have to tell you, when in 2015, MSF conducted a survey about 800 women in Rosenberg. And the results showed that one in four women have experienced rape within their lifetime. Right? And that excludes recurring sexual violence, recurring rape. 
So um, when victims present to health facilities, if they're not assessed directly for safety, they could be victimized again and again and again. So therefore, the mental health component as well as the social work component is so essential in providing this package of victims of rape, sexual violence. We're in conversation with Yolanda Henning of Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders, practicing as a psychologist in the platinum in the platinum belt around Rustenburg, talking to us about sexual violence in South Africa and the culture of rape survivors and their needs being thoroughly unmet, both by the public and private spaces. We're taking your calls on 0891-104-207. For those of you who want to join the conversation from any perspective, from any angle, it's not easy, obviously, and that's why we are absolutely not going to insist that you give us your name if you want to keep it that way and to the extent that you do want to contribute because you're practicing in that space you have been a victim you have been worse a perpetrator you are somebody living with either or you have in another capacity or manner or way been affected by this as an employer as a husband as a wife as a child as an uncle whatever your relationship is with rape Please give us a call. We do want to have your thoughts on this so that we can have a dialogue as opposed to just relying on, and very crucially as well, the perspectives of Zealander. But I think the voices of South Africans on something that affects us all in equal measure is very critical. Stay tuned, please. Otherwise, taking a quick ad break before we continue this conversation. If you're active on social media and love SAFM, we hope you'll take a moment to like or follow our SAFM page on Facebook and Twitter. These are the best places to find all the guest information, conversations and stories you love from your favorite presenters along with regular updates from SABC News. And don't forget, you can send your questions to feedback at safm.co.za. SAFM, leading the conversation. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM, 105.6 FM in Mtata. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. We're back talking to Yolanda Henning, Medicine Sounds Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders. Untreated violence. Tell us more about that, please, Yolanda, the series that you guys are running so as to create more awareness around this culture of sexual violence. Okay, so we have found that, you know, the communities are often unaware of the services that they can access where they are victims of sexual violence or rape, yeah? So we have included, um, in terms of the package of care and working closely with communities, a health promotion program that looks at providing community-based care to survivors. So we have health promoters going out, raising awareness about the services, raising awareness of how certain things can be prevented if you get access to care quickly, um, we also have our social workers looking at schools. Um, from our experience in the project, almost half of our survivors, based on the fact that we have a school program in place that makes referrals of child victims, 45%, up to 50% of our survivors are children. Yeah, that's 
that's below the age of 18. So um, it, 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 it goes to show that the mental health services should also be tailored to child survivors. And when we conducted the study last year on what our designated health facilities were offering, almost 45% of the facilities did not provide counseling for children. And 62% of those facilities had no child-friendly spaces. So when it comes to providing care for survivors, children are left out of the equation. And there is a need for the mental health professionals to become equipped to provide care to children. There are situations when our counselors make referrals to psychologists who would say that they're not equipped to see a child younger than three years old, for example. And some of our victims, child victims are as young as two to three years old. So this is a bit of what's going on. But as I was saying, you know, if you're providing a service, you also need to promote that service. And the health promotion is crucial. The communities based in Rothenburg are often nomadic, so they constantly changing communities. There's a message needs to out there all the time to ensure that people can access care. So on the one hand, you've got the problem with lack of awareness about services, and then also when people know about the service and they are referred, there's really no guarantee that they will be received at the, the public health facilities. This is the biggest problem. You mentioned quite a few things. We're going to talk about children. Okay. You also talk about the fact that the receivers at the healthcare facility are not necessarily trained. And I understand there would be reasons to justify that, as it were, not least among them, states' resources to offer that. But let's just talk about the long-term effects, which we often don't talk about enough, in a child going through the sort of trauma that rape can only occasion on a person, especially a child, the long-term effects and the recidivism that that creates in in breeding of this culture, abnormal as it is, becoming normalized because the child experienced it, was never given the psychological support that was necessary, and as such might quite easily be the one who does it in later life. Hurt people, hurt people. I'm sure you've heard that before. Yes, uh, yes, that is true. That is what we refer to as the cycle of violence. Um, what we've also found was that there are what we call child offenders. So you have like six to seven-year-olds, um, you know, assaulting, sexually assaulting another child of maybe four years old. Or you have a set of children between the age of four to seven, you know, having a situation where they are taking turns. So there's exposure to sexual violence very, from a very early age. When you talk about rape culture, I think it starts right there, you know, with where, where children's sexuality is exploited from day one, and uh, they are exposed too early to to sexual things, and often they observe things in the community and play that out. And that's how children learn. You know, they play out, they repeat, they they mimic what they see. And so, what we found is that often also dealing with child offenders, and when we receive them, they are also victims because they're just too young. But you're right to say that, you know, it's not a bad point. And if this is this is not treated correctly, it could result in the, you know, entrenching the rape culture even further. And then, of course, you have patriarchal norms, which I was trying to refer to earlier on, that further entrench mm-hmm. sexual violence. Yeah. 
And these patriarchal norms often lead to, you know, the disempowerment of women, for example. Please elaborate on that because this is critical. Just just elaborate on that. Assume I've asked a question. Just what are patriarchal norms? How do they manifest and how do they actually kill all your efforts? Okay. So what what let, let me use an example of um a family structure, right? Where yes. a young girl is raped um, by an uncle. If you know, by the victim. Example, okay. Mm. And the family hears about it, the mother hears. And this is the very same uncle that is ensuring the survival of the family. Okay? Uh-huh. And so there's a protection around the male figure who's the provider in this case. And so the elders meet and there's a discussion. And so you find that the well-being of and the, the shall we say, the reputation of the uncle supersedes the needs of this young girl. Uh, yeah, there's a failure to see rape as a crime. Yeah? What is seen yeah. then there is how can we remedy this situation without disrupting the family system? So one of the aunts goes to the police and tell, reports it to the police. The police tell them, no, you need to bring this child with you. You know, the girl doesn't want to come. The parents refuse. So that, that daughter is caught up in that triangle where the elders, which are also male, protect the reputation of the uncle. And this could lead to a marriage and a family with this continued violence. So this is one example, but there are different ways in which the patriarchy becomes entrenched. And it's linked to male dominance. Often we, we also say that we talk about intimate partner violence. That is violence between partners, the male and the female. Mm. You could also have a male and a male and a female and a female, depending on the, the kind of, of relationship. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But in terms of heterosexuality, which is more common, you find that with intimate partner violence, there might also be sexual violence. So here, you could look at the place-to-place relationship, for example, where the female is caught up in a relationship it's almost transactional, mm. yeah? But rape can occur within that context as well. And uh, sometimes she's in that relationship to support the family, you know? And it's kind of coerced. And it could start from a very young age. And this is all she knows. And then when she comes to the, 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 the health center, she could be a victim of sexual violence, present with all medical, psychological, social needs of, of a survivor, but she might not even define herself as such. You see, so this is how the patriarchy sometimes they said it must rape, it must raise sexual violence. It really, it, it, it goes further than just clear case where there's a perpetrator and there's a, a victim. Sometimes the perpetrator is the partner. Sometimes the perpetrator is the, the very well-meaning pastor, could be the uncle. You know, it could be the father, it could be the teacher. Let me ask this question, Yolanda. Let me ask this question, please. This is not in any way designed to take away what you're saying. I just want the framing perhaps to be delineated in a little finer detail. To the extent that the male is the perpetrator of the violence as could be occasioned on a child, either male child or female. Yeah. 
this protection of the man. When you say patriarchal norms, is it because you are framing it in the context of who the perpetrator is or who mm-hmm. those who protect the perpetrator are? In the context, it could quite easily be, for instance, that the mother doesn't work in this household, the perpetrator is the husband, and could be molesting any of the children in the household, either their own children or children who belong to other members of the extended family setup, or even the neighbors or trusted friends, as the case might be. What role does this mother in this setup have in protecting the most vulnerable interest here, that being of the child? And to the extent that this mother doesn't honor that obligation, both to the child and to society, and basic norms of humanity, what mm-hmm. is it that we call that person? Are you referring to the mother now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, when we we speak with mothers, they are often thinking that they are acting in the best interest of their children, because it's an issue between protecting the child from this is ensuring that there's food on the table. So what, do you, what choices do you make if you have seven children and you have the sole provider being the father or the uncle and so on? So often it's, it's a choice that they make for survival, yeah? So yes, there's, there's, there's certainly this collaboration and with counseling, as I was saying before, with proper counseling, the mother could... She, all these things could be highlighted, and with social services to support her, she could then make a decision in the best interest of her children. You know? So, so yes, it's, it's often linked to the issues of poverty. I'm talking extreme poverty, you know, where there's no certainty that there's food or water in that household. And if you disrupt the current patriarchal system as a set up, you are actually putting yourself and your whole family at risk of their survival, so it's a difficult choice to make. If it's, I don't even think it's a choice, then, you know? So, yes, there are different levels um, and layers to even this question you are asking. But Let's talk about... Mental, um, yes, yes, sorry. Sorry, yes? I beg your pardon. Carry on. No, it's not proper. Carry on. No, I, I, I just want now to sort of if I can just ex- elaborate on this argument or extend the conversation as it pertains to the family setup or the nucleus that protects this perpetrator and their complicity to what essentially is a crime. Them, by making, however difficult it may be, these difficult decisions of choosing food on the table or justice at the expense of food on the table, they are yeah. still nonetheless complicit to a crime especially mm-hmm. as adults, as it pertains to a child who has been assaulted. And that is not something that is often made a variable in this entire enterprise, as you call it, patriarchal norms or this the culture of rape. Can we talk yeah. about the those who rape after the fact, if you like, those who actually protect even, deliberately protect the interests mm-hmm. of the perpetrator? Yeah, so as I was saying, it's... It, it, not even, can we use the word deliberate if there's no choice, you see? So it's, it's also about understanding the complicity and why there's complicity. Um, and as, as mental health professionals, we often, whether we meet with um, the survivors or those that are complicit in the crime, we try to unpack, you know, what causes the complicity. And then once that's addressed, 
court is offered, the complicity can, will disappear. Because there's a lot of blame and self-blame that goes into being complicit, knowing you know full well what is happening in the home. Um, yeah, so, and when you talk about patriarchal norms, you're right. I mean, it's linked to a whole lot of complicity within family settings. Um, and people are complicit for different reasons. Um, and often the caregivers of these children or the mothers um, will find themselves becoming complicit due to all these factors that I've mentioned. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's, it's part of the, the, why it continues, why it becomes entrenched, and so on and so on. And again, to raising awareness in providing support, social services within these communities, giving mothers, daughters recourse to know that if they speak out, they will be supported. You know, if they go to the police station, the police won't show the case out because they know who the father is, for example. Mm. These are the kinds of things that they need. They need social services to support them, to be able to make decisions that are not complicit. Because I, I would argue that intentional. It's not even by choice. They have no other alternative. Are you there, Yolanda? I'm still here, yes. Sure, thank you so much. Yeah, I can. We're in conversation for those who've just joined us with Yolanda Henning of Medical Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders, 0891-104-207. We're talking about something which is, well, it's quite sobering even for me as somebody who thankfully hasn't had to interact with the topic of rape and surviving rape, as many in South Africa do, particularly children. 45 to 50% of rape survivors in this country, as Yolanda has just said, are children. Talking some tackling, tackling difficult issues, including what pertains when... A crime of rape is reported or isn't reported, talking about the difficult choices that have to be made if they even qualify as choices. My producer wants to know, and she's participating in this conversation, in disadvantaged communities like Rustenburg, how many people even seek the psychological help? Do they want it? Do they know that it is there? You talked about marketing and advertising the sort of facility that's yeah. available, this health intervention. But do people yeah. actually come? Is it a culture that they can get help there? And do they trust the system to sufficiently represent their interests in coming forward and really talking about something for most parts they would rather it did not even exist? Yeah, yeah. So within the context of Rustenburg, I would say that people in the community are fully aware about seeking out counseling services. Yeah, so they would often feel more willing to go and speak to a counsellor. This is something that's developed over the years, I think, with the HIV age uh, intervention, where counsellors have become quite acceptable within the community. So the, the survivors might not know exactly what they will be receiving, you're right there, but they do know somehow that they need to speak to a counsellor because they can feel the emotional effect that it has on them, you know. So there's a need to speak to a counsellor. They don't use words like psychologist. One use words like mental health, for example. But to speak to a counsellor, this is something that they would seek out. And through the raising of awareness, we offer this comprehensive package. Um, and as I was saying, you know, there's a strong focus within the public health sector on the medical legal care. And it's not 24-7. Um, and they leave out the mental health component. Now, a lot of times when these very survivors come for counseling, 
they could present with mental health disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, depression, anxiety, phobia, disassociation, and then we then need to refer them to a psychologist. And this referral is not very uh, definite. For example, if, if I was to refer a patient now who suffers severe depression or might be suicidal to a public health facility, there's a high chance that there won't be a bed available, that this person would have to wait overnight in a metal chair for service for a bed, and it's no guarantee that there'll be a bed the next day. So, so it, it, it would appear that public health facilities exclude mental health needs of the communities in terms of what they offer. Because if there's a complete disregard that mental illness does exist within the community. And now I'm not talking just about the violence, sexual gender-based violence. I'm talking about mental health in general, you know. Um, there's a, within the public health sector, there's a strong focus on psychotic patients and patients that might be violent. So often the psychiatric facilities focus only on them. But for the rest, or for the common person who suffers from mental health disorders that might require inpatient care, there's absolutely no care available to them. So um, I'm asking you questions in different mm. ways, but mm-hmm. just to say that, yes, they know they need emotional support, so they come for counselling. Um, and often when assessed, they might actually require further advanced mental health support, which would need to come from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You know? And I suppose and the important... big gap is... Mm-hmm. So let me just take the, let me please take a call from Z in Port Elizabeth who wants to breathe something on this matter. Good evening, Mkagaz. How are you? Hello. Yes, Mz. Hello. Yes, sir. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you? I'm all right. No, I'm not. Oh, what is that? Hang on. Uh, Z, sorry. Sorry, Mz. Um, There's Mz. Can you hear me? Mz. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. There's just some very funny sound coming from your phone. Okay, it's disappeared now. Please carry on. Okay. Now, um, the only thing that I want to comment on, okay, I'm a male. Um, I was born in um, in Kegeren. So I happened to stay with um, my cousin. Um, maybe growing up with ladies, um, I tend to be confused in a way because I used to do nails, makeup, hair, and all that, playing with girls and all that. Yes. So my cousin, he he used to molest me. Maybe it's, it's not something that I'm hiding, but it's something that I talk about when people are struggling with um, their gender, maybe when they say they're gay, mm. and they kind of maybe having the same experience where they were molested before. So in a nutshell, I'm trying to say um, it, 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 it has an effect in, in, in young people, basically, whereby you're not even telling your parents about it. You just keep it to yourself. And as you get old, I'm only 24 now, you, you have this vision or maybe this dream um, uh, dreams, I mean, uh, of what happened before, even when you're sleeping. As a male, you, you sleep and then you dream about, you know, but now you, you dream about this thing in an opposite sex. Uh, but for me, it was for another male. I had to speak with someone so that I can take it out from me 
there was no counseling and all that because growing up in rural areas, there is no way where you can report such a thing. Uh, mm. Strange to find that a male can fuse with another male. So mm. it's been a very, very difficult thing where I had to be involved in relationships because I wanted to prove that I'm a man enough. I'm not going to sleep with another man. With, with another man. So let me involve myself with girls, um, uh, different girls, so that I can prove that I'm a man. So it's something that we're struggling with. Maybe even when you're not sure whether you're straight or you what. Zia, I'm going to have to cut you there because we have to move on because we've got literally less than a minute and I would want Yolanda to at least in the 30 seconds that we have in the remaining part of the show to kind of like respond to this because, I mean, you have touched on so many social issues there. Yolanda? Yes, can you just give me a quick uh, summation of what he said? Well, I... Well... Essentially, he is a person who I understand him to have said he has a different sexual orientation to what was expected of him. He has also survived the abuse coming from a rural setup where it is not possible for him to speak openly about this thing. Basically, he is a man who has been bottling this thing up, if I understand Uh, correctly. Yes, I I understand. 30 seconds, please. Yes, yes. So, so within the context of the patriarchy, you have to be heterosexual or else, you know, you don't fit in. So a lot of times we also find survivors being, you know, victims of sexual violence because they are either lesbian, gay, bisexual, you know, transgendered and all the others. So, so yes, this is the impact of that as well. And he's not allowed to be who he is because he doesn't meet the requirements of the patriarchal norm of being a man and being in a heterosexual relationship. So um, I, I really, he's a victim of sexual violence, definitely. You would benefit from seeing someone to speak to them about what he's been through um, and the impact it's had on his life. And yes, to find sir. a way to begin to function normally again would be very important for him, for his self-acceptance in society. Because there are groups in society that do accept, that do believe, that do um, appreciate who he is. And I think for him to seek that out is very important. Thank you so much. Well, Mzi, we certainly wish you well here from all of us at SAFM, specifically this program, The Viewpoint. And with that, thank you so much to you, Yolanda, for joining us and for offering us some candid thoughts on what really is a social calamity. It's time for us to bow out now as the team from The Viewpoint and play in with the Daily Soapy Burnout.